happened to around the world in 80s movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. Net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. It is called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I cover brand new movies that are out in theaters or VOD or what have you. And you can find that link at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the third part of a three-part series looking at Queens of Mean in fantasy films from the 1980s. I've already looked at Return to Oz in my previous episode, as well as Willow in the one before that. This week, I'm going to round it out with a, an animated feature from 1983. It is by Ralph Bakshi, and it is called Fire and Ice. It's a PG-rated film. It does have violence, partial nudity, and mild language. This kind of film would probably be at least a PG-13 today. The runtime is an hour and 21 minutes. The cast, well, it's all over the place because they had different people to act and different people to do the voices, and occasionally some of them were the same, but the actors for an animated feature included Randy Norton, Cynthia Leake, Sean Hannon, Steve Sandor, William Ostrander. Ostrander also provided voice work, too. The voice work uh, also credited to Maggie Roswell, Stephen Mendel, Susan Tyrell. Not necessarily household names, but they are there for those who are interested. Ralph Bakshi, as I mentioned, is the director. The screenplay credited to Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway. Now, Fire and Ice is a production that boasts the uniting of two very well-known illustrators of fantasy at that time. Staunchly independent animator Ralph Bakshi and his personal friend from the underground comic scene. They knew each other for a long time. The legendary book cover and poster artist named Frank Frazetta. Now, as sword and sorcery properties were really beginning to heat up in the early 1980s, Ralph Bakshi came up with this idea for him to join forces with one of the main visionary artists in the genre. He asked Frazetta if he would like to co-produce this idea into a feature film. The investors who funded his prior film, the prior film called American Pop, ended up giving Bakshi $1.2 million to try to bring his new idea to life as a feature. Now, as with Bakshi's last two films, not only American Pop, but also 1978's The Lord of the Rings, he heavily used rotoscoping to do his animation. And rotoscoping, for those who are not familiar, is taking live-action performances by actors and then using that footage to convert those into a cartoon format. The artists use prints of each frame of black and white film to trace the outlines of the actors onto animation cells, and then they use those to produce replica drawings that give the appearance of animated work when they are played at full speed over painted backgrounds. Now, because Frazetta was an artist known for depicting his fantasy illustrations with a lot of realism, Bakshi felt that it was important to try to capture that same sense of realistic artwork into the animation and to have more realistic movements. Despite the rationale, though, Bakshi received a lot of criticism from his peers in the animation industry, not only on Fire and Ice, but his previous films for using this cost-cutting technique. Although Disney used their own form of the process for various films ever since 1937's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and Max Fleischer famously did it all before them, really came up with the process. The basic story for Fire and Ice involves this fantasy world imagined before the last Ice Age, featuring 
human civilizations and dinosaurs of some sort coexisting and all sorts of fantasy characters and beasts. This is a time where the lands are divided among two factions. There's the evil ice pick sorcerer warlords, Queen Juliana and her wicked son Necron. They're leading this army of ape-like subhumans to do their bidding. And there's also the goodly Firekeep clan led by the benevolent King Gerald. The Ice Clan's Necron is using his telekinetic powers to send giant glaciers out to freeze over the rest of the world, and that forces the good humans to end up setting camp near the volcanoes to stay warm. Now, our main hero for the movie is the vengeful barbarian named Larn. He's the survivor of North Village. They were one of the victims of Necron's glacier attacks, and it takes out all of his people except himself. Gerald's beloved teenage daughter, Princess Tigra, gets kidnapped from Necron's subhuman minions shortly after, and Tigra manages to escape, and she runs into Larn, and the two form an instant romantic partnership of a sort, as King Gerald sends his son Taro and his men to seek a peaceful solution. Larn ends up making his way to Necron's abode, and he also joins forces with this mysterious warrior named Dark Wolf, who is traveling to the Ice City himself to thwart the Ice Lord's wrath. That's really the basic setup here. It might be presumed that the choice to animate the live actors in Fire and Ice is for stylistic and financial reasons. After all, it was much less expensive to draw a cartoon glacier destroying a city than it would have been to recreate it in a live-action format. For animation, movements are very fluid and realistic, and it does allow Bakshi to create the characters to be as flawlessly shapely and sexy as he wants, or in the case of the humans, as ugly as they need to be. And you have professional voice work to match all of these characters as well. None of the animation really works as good as Frasetta's completed paintings, which may disappoint some of his fans who are expecting his detailed style to be featured beyond stationary backgrounds and still shots used in the prologue. Now, Frazetta's art contribution was limited to the film. He spent most of his time actually as a co-producer, and he taught the animators, one being a young Peter Chung, Peter Chung, who eventually went on to create and direct the animated MTV series called Eon Flux. There were also background artists employed, including the team of future famed pastoral painter of light, Thomas Kincaid and James Gurney of Dinotopia fame. They were former roommates as freshmen in college at UC Berkeley, and this was really their first big gig. The colorists also worked with Frazetta to do their art the Frazetta way. They had buff barbarians and voluptuous princesses and a lot of exotic beasts to draw in the manner that he did. The young artists were overwhelmed by feelings of inadequacy by having Frazetta around when they worked because of his star status among them. He was kind of a god among artists, and he influenced a lot of their work since they were very young kids. He also helped to design the costume work. He worked with the actors and the stuntmen on what movements they should perform, and many of those stuntmen found his direction to be unnecessary and somewhat embarrassing to their notions of professionalism because he really had no idea what he was talking about. And he would also bring in a lot of his famous friends to see the film actually as they were making it, including Arnold Schwarzenegger, whose Conan the Barbarian was heavily influenced by Frazetta's covers for the series. In fact, Frazetta was a visual consultant for Conan the Barbarian. Now, to develop the animation, a soundstage in Hollywood was rented out, and they had actors perform in front of the cameras to capture their movements. 
Scaffolding was substituting for the sides of cliffs and mammoth rocks, and they used cranes to simulate the actions of monstrous creatures, and portions of tree limbs were brought in to resemble the exotic trees that are featured in the film, and they really came to life later in the animation process. There was also some local exteriors just outside. They used the Hollywood area for the actors to try to capture the movements necessary for the animators to rotoscope if they needed more room. The animation also allowed Bakshi, who famously came to prominence with an X-rated cartoon called Fritz the Cat in 1972, to try to keep a PG rating here. The animated violence and the nudity is seen as not nearly as graphic as it would be if this were a live-action display. But beyond all of that, all of the characters do still leave little to the imagination given that they barely cover themselves with clothing, especially Princess Tigra, who appears to be ready to burst out of her micro-bikini throughout. To cast Tigra, Bakshi, and Frazetta determined that the only way that they could ensure that the actors that meet the voluptuous dimensions of a Frazetta woman would be for them to see them with their clothes off. They estimate that they screened about 2,000 women nude in the casting process. Bakshi quipped, not bad for two guys from Brooklyn, but Frazetta was all professional. He did not indulge in some of the commentary that Bakshi did. On the violence front, the characters end up getting impaled. They get gored by a variety of weapons, some going through a body in a bloodier fashion than would probably be allowed in a live-action showcase and still maintain that PG rating. The screenplay for Fire and Ice is credited to two writers from Marvel Comics fame, Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas. They were also working on the script to the sequel to Conan the Barbarian at the time, and it's not surprising that they would do all this work given that Roy Thomas wrote for over a decade the issues of Conan the Barbarian comic book for Marvel, while Jerry Conway also served as its editor-in-chief during that period. They took Bakshi's basic concepts and added elements that they found within Frazetta's illustrations to try to come up with a fleshed-out story. Not surprisingly, there's barely enough story here to really fill out even a 32-page comic book. The characterizations in Fire and Ice are pretty one-note. Necron is a typical demented madman for no discernible reason. Larn, a kind of a generic hero type, and Dark Wolf is essentially Batman in a sword and sorcery setting. Tigra is used here mostly as an object of modern male fantasy. She looks like she jumped right out of a swimsuit magazine, complete with plucked eyebrows and shaved legs and bare armpits and you imagine what else. Bakshi and Frazetta decided that they would go another direction when it came to the fighting sequences, and they eschewed the traditional Hollywood trope of choreographed sword fights so they could concentrate more on straightforward brute force attacks that they felt were in keeping with the savage world that these characters inhabit. Now, giving Fire and Ice a more epic reach is the synthesized score from William Kraft, and from a sights and sound standpoint, Fire and Ice is a fine movie to experience, as long as you don't have any expectations on really caring one whit about any of these characters or being told a story that really compels you in any general direction. The script, I do feel, is the weakest element of Fire and Ice. It has a very simple premise, and it doesn't feel like it had been well thought out, and has dialogue that really doesn't rise above the level of what you might expect on a Saturday morning cartoon. Frank Frazetta himself recognized that the writing was the weakest part, but he did his best to try to overcome that weakness by making sure that the action was up to his standards as well as the art. In fact, he had to draw some of the elements because the artist couldn't produce them as well, and that includes the giant lizard and some of the wolves. And He even directed some of the rotoscoped sequences. 
Now, Sean Hannon, who was the actor who played the part of the evil Necron before it ended up getting voiced over by Stephen Mendel, he reveals in his notes from his diary that he kept during the production a fairly interesting bit of trivia about the film's ending that was not used. Some viewers have surmised themselves from watching Fire and Ice. If you watch it enough times, you might come up with this notion that Dark Wolf is somehow more connected to Necron than we learn through the dialogue. And in the original ending... It was specifically stated that Dark Wolf is, in fact, Necron's father. However, Bakshi ended up deciding against revealing this in his later re-edit. He felt that it was best to leave Dark Wolf shrouded in mystery, especially given that Star Wars would be a very main comparison if that were left in. Sean Hannon also reveals that the film had many other character touches that ended up getting cut out by Bakshi, especially those humorously improvised lines by the live actors, but Bakshi ended up removing them prior to the film's release. Rosetta has stated he really did not agree with some of Bakshi's tinkering after the fact, but he did resolve that he was not the filmmaker, and there may be reasons for the changes that he doesn't quite understand. Fire and Ice was picked up by 20th Century Fox for distribution from Pacific Sales Organization, and it was released in the United States on August 26th in 1983. 20th Century Fox hoped that the film could bring out audiences beyond older cult fans of Bakshi and Frazetta and really tap into that sword and sorcery mini genre that was proving popular among the kids. So they ended up testing the waters and released Fire and Ice in less than 90 theaters in the United States, but it did not fare very well there. And all in all, it ended up garnering a paltry $760,000 in its theatrical run. It really was deemed too adult for kids, and it was not sophisticated enough to entertain most discerning adults, and that relegated its appeal primarily to 12-year-old boys who were unlikely to venture into the more obscure theaters that carried it. By the way, I was 12 years old when this came out, so it really was up my alley in many respects. Now, after the failure to catch fire at the box office, Bakshi He became dismayed at the prospects for animated features altogether. He proclaimed that animation really was a dead genre beyond Disney and its prodigious marketing machine, for movies anyway. He cited other failures by notable talent trying to take up the Disney mantle and be lucrative at the box office. Don Bluth, George Lucas, Rankin Bass, and Hanna-Barbera all had recent movies that did not do very well at the box office. Bakshi said at that time he was going to sell his animation studio and concentrate solely on making live-action films for the foreseeable future. He ended up in negotiations with Paramount to try to make a film that he felt was reminiscent of Grapes of Wrath, for instance, but it didn't really pan out as far as films go. But he did work on some smaller animation projects over the years after this. TV's The New Adventures of Mighty Mouse. That one came to fame kind of dubiously. It came under severe criticism from members of the religious right because there was a three and a half second shot of Mighty Mouse sniffing a flower that they claimed was meant to promote snorting cocaine. He also worked on the animation for the music video for the Rolling Stones' Harlem Shuffle. He said he would return to animated features if he could do more works by J.R.R. Tolkien or if he crafted a satire on Hollywood that he had in mind. That satire would eventually become the live-action animation hybrid called Cool World that was released in 1992 to no great critical acclaim. So it pretty much ended his career in films right after that. But as for me, my take on Fire and Ice, it's one of those movies I find more interesting to watch than I do to recommend it to others. It's 
kind of slim pickings as far as the storyline goes. It really is kind of fascinating to watch from the rotoscoping perspective. It's a good-looking movie in many respects. Those backgrounds are beautiful, and a lot of it is very fluid. It's very watchable, I feel, but not quite enough for me to give it a wholehearted recommendation to most people. So I'm going to shade down to a two-and-a-half star movie out of four. Two-and-a-half stars on my scale means that it had all the tools and talent to be a movie I could recommend to people who are really into this genre, but I can't quite get behind it because the storyline just needed a little bit more nuance, a little bit more work, something interesting to happen beyond just pretty pictures to look at for the runtime. So two-and-a-half stars out of four is what I give Fire and Ice. As far as the film I'm going to be looking at next week, well, I talked about it just slightly earlier, and it's very much in keeping with Fire and Ice. In fact, as I mentioned, Frank Frazetta had his hand a little bit into the film. It is from 1982, that sword and sorcery classic from the 80s called Conan the Barbarian, and that will be the feature film for the next episode. So check out Conan the Barbarian if you want to keep up with the reviews as I deliver them. If you have your own comments as far as Fire and Ice goes that you want to impart, you can reach me at various ways at my website. You can check out links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, my Instagram, and also my email. You can find all of that at quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 